Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with celebrated jazz drummer and band leader Jerry Gibbs. He opened up about his new 2021 CD, Songs from My Father, a celebration of the music of bebop luminary Terry Gibbs. And the CD prominently features music titan Chick Corea on his final recording ever. This is Jerry's 13th release as a leader, and it's an impressive double-disc masterwork featuring four itinerations of his acclaimed Thrasher Dream trio. After 10 months and 15,000 miles of car travel, it is here. He grew up in Southern California and started playing the drums at the age of four. By the time he was seven, he had already appeared on a few TV shows. His story is captivating. Enjoy. Hey, man, thanks again for taking a minute out. I appreciate it. I appreciate the uh, interest. I uh, appreciate being here. So your dad had quite a legacy in the world of jazz. Yeah, he, he, uh, he's been around for quite a while. He's played with pretty much uh, anybody from uh, the bebop era, you know, and millions of other people and had his, uh, you know, yes, he's a day. I always uh, talk about his career, uh, and I, I can mention like 20 names that he's either recorded or toured with. You know, not much needs to be said after that. And he's worked with, you know, he's played with everybody from Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Roy Eldridge, Max Roach, Benny Goodman, Woody Herman, Buddy Rich. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the, the list is gigantic. Uh, you're paying the ultimate homage to your dad. Who obviously is a, a jazz legend? What was this process like? How did it come about? Yeah. I mean, I kind of explained it in the liner notes, but it's very—it's um, even longer than that. But uh, the, I'll give you the short version. So, you know, um, I've been recording for Wailing City Sound Records for oh man, since uh, 2005, and um, and I pretty much make a record almost every year, every 18 months or so for them. So I was, you know, I, I had started this new band, and it was this was really one of the best bands. I just found seven people that really could play what I was writing, and we just played only played two nights, and we've done two rehearsals, and I thought this is the band. And then COVID started, and so I called uh, the the you know I was talking to Neil Weiss from the record label. We were talking, and he's like, "Man, this thing is really crazy." You know, I guess maybe next month we'll talk about something that this this uh, COVID disease thing is. You know, it, you know, hopefully it'll be over by then. You know, nobody knew what it was going to turn into, and so you know, all of a sudden, then things got out of control, and, and we had this lockdown for two weeks. And so I thought to myself, well, I got nothing else to do. What am I going to do with myself? And I have my own recording studio, so I thought, you know what? Uh, I spoke to the record label again, and they said, you know we might not be doing anything this year. It looks like we may not. And we may have to think about something for next year, postpone something for next year. And so then I said, you know what? Would it be cool if I went into my studio and made a record where I play all the instruments? I'm gonna, it's just going to be all my original music, and I'm going to write new music every day and play all the instruments, and I won't charge anybody for it. So it won't be a conflict of interest with the record label. And they said, no, go ahead. And so I, I recorded uh, 19 songs in 19 days. And I would write a new song and I'd play all the keyboards and the bass, I'd either acoustic or electric bass, and I'd do all the vocals and the drums and the percussion and, and synthesizers and everything that I had in the studio. And when it was over, I just decided, you know, I'm just going to send it out to 500 people on my email list and 
post it up on Facebook, and anybody that wants it, I'll create a draft box, and I'll send it to everybody. And Chick Corea was in my, he was in my email. And we had not played together before, but we knew each other. But, I mean, not great, but we knew each other. You know, if I walked into a room and Chick saw me, he'd be like, oh, hey, Jerry, how are you? And he was in my email list. And I sent it to him, and, of course, you know, I mean, I have, like, really close friends that never got around to listening to it. But he did, and he wrote me an email, and he said, Jerry, I've listened to this thing you sent me a few times, and I'd really like to talk to you about it and your process for writing and, and playing all the instruments, and could you send me your phone number? I was pretty, you know, I was really like, wow, I couldn't believe it. So I, I, you know, I sent him my phone number, and within an hour he called me. We spoke for about two hours, and he just kind of blurted out, we should do something together. We should work on something together, you know, and I had been working on these soul piano pieces, and so that I sent that to him, and then he said, let's, man, we should really, you should, you know, expand this, and he just, we just talked about, you know, about maybe doing something when COVID got better, and I just blurted out, you know, Chick, I know you don't usually do sideman stuff, but would you play on my next record? And I, and I didn't have anything planned. I mean, thought the record label we weren't even going to record that year he said yeah i'd love to do it and i thought wow and i said well i need to find out if the record label can even afford you and he said oh no don't worry about that i'm, I'm just going to do it i'm just going to do it and that's not we need to discuss that he said but your music is really challenging and really you know you have a lot of like very um very elaborate music and so whatever you have in mind you know, he agreed. He said, I'll play on four tunes. You know, give me some time with your music. Send it to me so I can work on it, and then we'll figure out from there how we're going to record and what we're going to do. So I called the record label, and I told them, and they said, is it possible? I mean, how, how are you going to do it? And I said, well, I have an idea. He always going to play on four tunes. I said, what about if I did an, uh, an elaborate version of my Thrasher Dream Trio with Ron Carter and Kenny Barron, and if I did four Thrasher Dream Trios and made a double record of, of music. And they said, well, you know, like, really? How are you going to do that? And I said, well, I got some ideas of how I can maybe do it through COVID and how I can, you know, get people in the studio. There's a studio that I use in, in the Queens that has all these different entrances. So people could just walk right in and nobody would be near each other. Nobody would see each other. And and uh, then also in L.A., I, I made some calls about studios that had everything that I needed and had separate entrances and an easy way to, to record with nobody being near each other. And so that's what I started working on. And, and because of, of COVID, I was able to get everybody on the phone in one day and everybody to agree based on how was it going to be done and, and what, were, what were the safety precautions would be to do it. So I started working on that, but then I thought to myself, you know something, we're not going to get rehearsals in. I'm going to get guys in the studio, and I need to play more conventional music to kind of showcase what everybody can do, which is improvise. You know, everybody's like, I got the greatest improvisers. And I wanted to take it up even another level as far as something that meant something to me. So, of course, as a, a musician that composes all the music for all my records always or arranges all the music for all my records, but mostly composes almost everything on all my records, I thought to myself, you know, I, this all these people, the majority of these people are people that I grew up listening to as a little kid, you know, or, or records that my dad got me, my first Ron Carter record, my first Buster Williams record, my first Chick Corea record, my first Kenny Barron record. 
Um, and he's my first Patrice Russian record. You know, I think Patrice may be only about 13, 14 years older than me, but I, I was a huge fan of hers when I was in junior high school. And she had just gotten out of high school and made her first record. And I wore that record out. So it just kind of, I thought about it, and I was thinking maybe I should, I should do all pops music. You know, that would really, because I grew up with it. It's music that, that I've been listening to my whole life, and then it would take on another entity. At that point, you know, I was talking to my wife. We were taking a walk on, in, in Queens. There was nobody on the street. It was like dead silent. It was so eerie and everything. And we're walking, and I said, um, and i got to figure out what music I'm going to do. And then my wife, Keisha, said, why don't you do pops music? You know, do a tribute to his music. You grew up with it. We listen to it all the time. We listen to it in the car. You know, she loves my dance music. She listens to it. And I said, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking that, you know, just thinking, you know, about that, you know, this week, like maybe I didn't voice it out loud, but it just kind of went in the back of my mind. I thought, I don't know, maybe I should. Then I thought, Mark Remy, who works radio, he's a really old friend of mine, a really long friend of mine, long-time friend of mine, and I said, I'm going to call Mark and tell him everybody that I have on the record. Mark hadn't been working my records. Um, you know, he had, he had the record label had uh, somebody else that had been working them. So, but basically, I um, I called Mark and I said, hey, Mark, man, you won't believe I did. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make this new record and... I told him everybody that it was that was on it, and his first comment was, "Well, what music are you going to do?" And I said, "Well," and before I could even say anything, he said, "Man, you should do your pops music. You should do you should do a tribute to your pops." I said, "Why do you say that?" He said, "We well, got all these great people, and you know, and it would be nice." And I thought, "Okay, so this is like divine intervention. This is everybody said the my wife said it without me saying anything to her, and Mark said it, and so I just I thought, well, I'll surprise them, but." I'm not really good at that. And then I realized as I was trying to get some of his music together, I could transcribe it, but, man, I'd love to try to just get some of the lead sheets just so I can just see what originally was on them. So I just told him what I was going to do. And, and then, of course, then he said, oh, I, I don't even have lead sheets for half of these. I was like, oh, well, well I, I guess I am going to have to transcribe them off the records. So that's basically how the whole record came about. And then it was just, Getting in the car, I drove 15, with my, with my wife, I drove 15,000 miles. And uh, out of fear of sleeping in a hotel, um, I, we would just sleep in the car, put pillows all over the car. And, and, um, but I had to zigzag all over America, like, you know, you know, just because of scheduling. And, you know, sometimes we were going to record and then COVID would get really crazy again. And guys, some guys would be nervous and say, and I'm afraid to go in the studio, Jerry, you know. Can we see what's going on in the next three or four weeks? And I'd have to, you know, re, re, uh, you know, book something and figure out how I was going to do it. And in the end, after fifteen thousand miles and fourteen nights of sleeping in the car and just an incredible amount of time to just organize, it finally done. <laughs> and there's the whole thing. Yeah, I love it, man. So this has to be special because it's one of Chick's last recordings. It is his last. It is his very last record that he played on. The very last. Wow. One. Recorded. Um, we check. We recorded in November, and then he got sick in January, and then he passed in February. And I have been talking to Chick between August when we had planned it because we didn't do it right away. Between August and 
uh, November, uh, Chick and I were talking weekly about other things and, you know, other music and about maybe when COVID was over, about, you know, looking at some other things to do. And it was very interesting. I mean, there was nothing concrete talked about who or what was said, but, you know, we were establishing this really, like, you know, for me, you know, growing up as a, a child, you know, idolizing this guy. It was, you know, it was exciting just to be on the phone every week talking about other music and other things other than this, you know, because this was already set and ready to go when we got to it. He was just like kind of, you know, watch the numbers and see everything that was going on and how we were going to race and do it and then race, race out and, you know, be done with it. So, um, but yeah, this was his very last thing. And I know that, was the, you know, from talking to knowing what he had been working on and, also, his manager had said to me after he passed, she's like, you know, your record is the last thing he recorded. And I was like, wow. I was going to say this, Joe, when you're, you know, and I always say this to myself, if I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, rather, if somebody had came in and they said, hey, you know, you'll get a chance to play with Chick Corea one day. And I'd be like, really? You know, like, you can see into the future? Yeah, but it'll be the very last thing you'll ever do. That would have been, the, like, something you'd be like, oh, that's just, that sounds stupid. You know, that that. That's not, what does that mean? That's not going to happen. And so it's very weird to think like, wow, this is the last record he played on, you know. I mean, it's not the last time he got behind the piano, but it's the last thing that was recorded to be released. Yeah, life is stranger than fiction, man, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, there's this common perception of people that talk to the offspring of those that are famous, and you assume they're going to do what their parents do. Was this always something that was written in the stars for you to do, to become a musician? How did all, and I know from your bio, you know, being on the Steve Allen show, there's so many things that happen young for you, but was this kind of your destiny? No, because my dad, there's many things. My dad really had a, has a thing about, I'm not going to push him into music. If he wants to play, he can play whatever music he likes, he he can like it. If he wants to talk to me, my music, he talked about, you know, his generation's music. And there was even a period uh, in high school where, I, it, it's, it's really hard to explain, I guess I was, uh, you know, I had so much music in my head and there was so much music that I was interested in. And as a young drummer, young musician in high school, I wasn't sure how to bridge all these directions because I was really big into the avant-garde when I was in high school. There was something that drew me to that. And I was really big into, into the fusion uh, scene. And I was really big into straight ahead and bebop and big band. And I loved Dixieland. And I loved what they call elevator music. I'd, I'd be in high school. Uh, you know, I'd be like, uh, you know, in high school, like at lunchtime, sitting eating lunch, listening to a Les Baxter record, a cassette tape in my player. Like, you know, kids going like, what is that? That sounds like something my grandma was to, you know, or I might be listening to the Art Ensemble of Chicago sitting in the quad at lunch. And they go, what is that noise? You know, kids would. And so there was so much music I was into. And I thought, I don't know what how to tune my drums up so it works for all these different kinds of music, you know, it was, I hadn't had enough experiences where, you know, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I stopped playing. And I, I didn't play for a year, and I ended up playing the cello for fun. And I just didn't, I just didn't play my drums. And he never once said, like, hey, what are you doing? You're not going to get, there was never a thing about, you know, you got to practice. The only thing he ever kind of 
tried to push me into was if you're going to play, you need to learn how to read music so that you can, you know, you can walk into somebody's situation and they're going to say, well, we don't have enough rehearsal time. Here's the music, read it and play. And that was the only thing that he really pushed. He never pushed any particular type of music or or style. And there was a lot of music I listened to that he was probably rolling his eyes back to. So he always kind of felt like, um, you know, you have to choose your destiny. He was like that with his parents where they played traditional Jewish music and then all of a sudden he's getting into bebop and that's not what his dad did. You know, his dad was a, a, a Jewish band leader playing Jewish music on his violin with, you know, with an orchestra. You know, he kind of had that kind of thing. So he never, no, he never really, you know, never anything. I mean, I was listening to music that he would never listen to and he was totally cool with it. So, no, it wasn't really that thing. And there's other things that I'm, really I'm really pushing my career into like really wanting to write for for film more than anything um because I'm into a lot of different things and he's always like oh that's great you know he's always cool and and again even though this record is very straight ahead and it's, you know it comes out of that era it's you know it's a, it's a swinging jazz record there's a lot, I've made other records that you know are completely different sounding than this you know um, and so, um, no, he's never been hands on with anything to answer your question. Yeah. So after all of these years of being a musician, what do you like the best about this process of being able to create music and do what you do? What do you enjoy the most about it? You know, everything has a different meaning. Um, I've got 40 records in my head and whenever I have the opportunity to get to one of them, I, you know, especially with this label, they've been so hands off about like, okay, you know, here's, here's the finances, do it, get us the master and we'll put it out. And which is uh, such an exciting process for this record. Once I sat down and I had everybody on board, which actually happened in one day, as I said before, I basically uh, wrote the, I went, I went on a drive with my wife for three hours and I just needle dropped all of his music from my iPod I said, okay, this one, kick those feet, write that one down, I'll do this one. Um, keep nail dropping, no, 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 no. I, I knew every song, but I had a thing in my mind what what I wanted to do uh, harmonically and, and, and just the way it, it sounds to me um, as far as maybe some of his melodies that were really catchy, that were, you know, very simplistic and how it would fit to each trio so that I would have what I wanted. And then after three hours, I basically picked those songs. I had the I had all the songs written down. I even had the order of the CD, and I never deviated from any of that. And then I just planned everything. So in in this context, once I knew I was playing pop music, it was all about let me let me play let me do this, and, and I want him to like it, and I want to set it up so that each rhythm section walks in and says, wow, you really tailored made the right music for what I, you know, although it, you know, it didn't have to play anything, but I chose what I thought would really be, I hate to say the word best because anything could be the best. I could have had anything play any of these tunes, but, you know, I had a thing in my mind what I wanted to hear on them. So that was, for this record, that was basically, it was just really that simple. Let me just get their best solos because the melodies are really infectious. They're very simple, and they're easy to, to hear on both ends, and they kind of set you on a, 
you hear the melody, you play the melody, and then it kind of sets you into a certain, you know, harmonic mood, a certain rhythmic mood, and, 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 and a color, and then we would record it. Uh, I made the, the record I made before this record uh, was a group I put together, and it was called Our People, and I called that band Thrasher People, and I found four of us where we played 40 instruments between the four of us. So that process is like nothing relatable at all to this process because that process was I'm going to write all this music. Uh, all four of us are going to do maybe 20 overdubs each of vocals. So we're, we're going to sound like an 80-piece choir. And then everybody played so many instruments. It was a constant overdub. And I had a big chalkboard in the studio and with rules and things, how we were going to do it, timing-wise and stuff. So, Alex, you're going to play piano on this thing, and then we'll overdub the out, your, we'll overdub you playing the alto sax in this section here, and then I'm going to overdub you uh, doing your vocals here, and then, you know, and then, uh, and then my, I'll bring you in, and I'll have you do three overdubs of flutes here, I'll have you do a voice here, I'm going to have you play the, uh, the, uh, the, the Fender Rhodes here. And it was this kind of process where, it was about trying to get my music tracked and stuff. So it, every record really takes a complete different approach. It's not like I'm every record is I'm going to play a standard type of song where there's going to be a melody and there's going to be a solo and maybe I made an arrangement and there's a melody out. I don't really make records always in that type of, um, you know, in that, that type of way. Um, with my Thrasher Dream Trio, um, I had different. Re I did one record of all R&B tunes from the 70s, but I wanted to make all these R&B tunes that never have solos on them. Earth, Wind, and Fire songs that don't have solos, Stevie Wonder songs that don't have solos, Marvin Gaye songs that don't have solos, and I wanted to try to purposely make them sound like they were standards, like Stella by Starlight or Autumn Leaves, but they weren't. They were like hits that when you hear them, you know them. And I and I never really I, I never really hear people approach jazz guys approach R and B tunes and try to try to turn them into sounding like you're just playing a standard song you know like guys that just record standards so that was another process so every every record for me has a different meaning I never just like get together go oh here's some songs oh, oh, oh I like that song I'll record that one and and then oh maybe I'll add that song. I get I have the concept in my mind, and within usually an hour, I have everything mapped out how I'm going to do it. I, I mean, I need more time to arrange it, but I make notes on on how I'll arrange it and what colors I'll use, what instruments I may use, or how I'll go about it. And then I almost probably only deviate maybe five or ten percent from everything that's on the piece of paper that I'm going to do because I can kind of visualize what it's going to sound like already, and and then I just, um, that's the fun process for me is then to say, well, here's my map. And I know the tempos. I know the, I just know what it's going to sound like. I even have the order. Like on this record with my dad's music, I recorded 19 songs and I didn't change the order from what I wrote before I even recorded it. I knew this would be the order based on what I, how I visualized the whole thing. So every record has a completely different, process that I have to go through and a different logistic way to who's going to play on it and how I'm going to do it. Everyone, everyone has an idea of who they think you are, perception, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. 
What's your perception of yourself? Who do you think you are? An idiot, to be honest with you. (laughs) 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 No, for real. I mean, I'm I'm not serious about it. You know, you know, I'm, you know, I, I guess I always look at music as an extension of who I am. I mean, and you just take all this information and it filters through you the way that it does. And um, I don't, I don't, I'm not a person that has a label. Like, you know, I never was part of any kind of clique. Like, I'm going to be part of all these beboppers, or I'm going to be part of all these fusion guys, or or whatever. There was always so much music that that kind of sounded like soundtracks to, you know, to how I am, what I, you know, other people's music that were like soundtracks. And so I was like, and I could really resonate with with that. So, I mean, I I remember one time when I got out, I was just out of high school and I had this incredible, it was like an eight day, within eight days, I played uh, a gig with Parliament, I played four nights with Parliament Funkadelics. Then I played, I, I did a concert with Alice Coltrane and then I played a concert with the uh, with the played a gig with the um, Donald Bird Black with the, his LA version of the Blackbirds, and then uh, and then I played a gig with Harold Land, and they're all like oh no no with with Woody Shaw I subbed for for Billy Higgins with Woody Shaw uh, for one night, and so there was like such contrast going from one thing to the next to the next, and you know I guess that I just. You know, if it's something resonant, almost anything can resonate with me. And, uh, I like, you know, so I don't, I'm not that serious though about, you know, you just do it because you just do it. And, and I, and I like to do it. And probably the only time that I'm serious is the very second that the, the, the song starts. And then when the song ends, then I'm not that serious about anything. You know, I don't take, take anything too serious and, you know, it's all just uh, for entertainment, and you know, I don't. T- it's like um, I'm I'm always, you know, obviously I'm always happy if somebody likes the record, but if they don't like the record, I'm always like, well, sorry, you know. I mean, that's just what it, what I made, and maybe the next one, and I don't get offended, you know. I'm I just um, you know, it's just some, you know, playing music is just an extension of my life, so it's not like it is my life; it's just an extension of my life. You know, if that makes right sense. On. Right yeah, it certainly does. Jerry, thank you for taking a minute out to talk about this album. It's a wonderful story in your world of music. I appreciate it. Oh, Joe, thank you so much for and and thanks for your interest and in, I really I appreciate you know the fact that you wanted to do a radio interview. You know that you thought enough of it to do that. So um, I say all that just to say that uh, I sincerely really thank you for uh, you know your interest and and like I said, pops. He'll really be excited because, uh, you know, this is like uh, this record, you know, really means something to him. All these people are even McBride. He loves Christian. He always he he's, he's always liked Jeff Keezer. He, he doesn't know he, he doesn't know Jeff. He's never met him, but he hears him on the radio. He loves Larry. He does. You know, he's met Larry once or twice. Patrice used to play with me all the time. So he, they don't, they never played together, but he would come to my gigs with Patrice would be playing with me and, and then they would talk, whatever. And so, but then everybody else are, you know, he, he's never played with Ron, never played with Buster, he's never played with Kenny, but they all know each other. And so this record meant everything to him. So uh, all the success that happens, I, you know, I'm more happy for him than, <laughs> than for me because 
so, you know, so into it. That's really cool. Yeah, totally. Totally. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Los Angeles, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jerry for his class, cool, and time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.